0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Digital Bob phone, he's our guest, novelist, screenwriter, and journalist, Edward Docks.
2: I, and I, in creation where one's nature neither honours nor forgives, I, and I, one says to the other, No man sees my face and lives. Took an untrodden path once, where the swift don't win the race. It goes to the worthy, who can divide the word of truth. Took a stranger to teach me to look into justice's beautiful face and to see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I and I In creation where one's nature neither honours nor forgives, I and I. One says to the other, no man sees my face and lives. Outside of two men on a train platform, there's nobody in sight. They're waiting for spring to come, smoking down the track. The world could come to an end tonight, but that's all right. She should still be there sleeping when I get back. I and I, in creation where one's nature neither honours nor forgives. I and I, one says to the other, no man sees my face and lives. Noontime, and I'm still pushing myself along the road. The darkest part, into the narrow lanes. I can't stumble or stay put. Someone else is speaking with my mouth, but I'm listening only to my heart. I've made shoes for everyone, even you. while I still go barefoot. I and I, in creation where one's nature neither honours nor forgives. I and I, one said to the other, no man sees my face and lives.
0: Whoa, Thanks, Ed. One of his lighter offerings. <laughs> We're still waiting for springtime, aren't we? We're still waiting for noon. Why yep. did you choose that uh, brilliant piece of writing?
2: Um, many, many reasons. But first uh, and foremost, because believe it or not, it was the first Dylan song I ever heard. And uh, it changed my world, changed my universe, changed my thinking, changed everything. I was um, 14 years old. And I was actually on a campsite in northern Italy, traveling with my parents who used to drive us around Europe on these mad camping trips. I come from a very large family. I've got six brothers and sisters. And I can't remember what it was. There'd been some very minor argument, probably about who was doing the washing up or something. So in an adolescent strop, I'd gone for a walk with my Walkman. And I'd just got a Walkman. It was very recent. Uh, And I had a tape. And I'd been listening to the, the tape a lot on the A side. But for some reason on this walk, I decided to put in the B side and hit reverse on the tape, as, as those of you who remember Walkmans <laughs> will know you can do. And so I'm walking along this escarpment and I'm looking down to my left. And there's this incredible valley. This Aosta is in, in northern Italy, just as you come through the Mont Blanc tunnel. Mm-hmm. And it's twilight. And the sky really is sapphire, and you can see down into Italy uh, through this valley. And I put this tape on and I hit play, and I hear the first bars of the song "I and I," and as you both know, that is just a life-changing moment. And it just starts with this great introduction of a an incredibly rich and textured songwriter. And then we get to that chorus that I just read. I and I in creation where one's nature neither honors nor forgives. I and I, and here's the line that chills you. One said to the other, no man sees my face and lives. And I thought, what the hell is this? (laughs) What is this music? This is off the scale. And I, I couldn't, I could not believe it. And I, put it on again. And I just couldn't believe the depth and strength and beauty and layered wonder of the thing I was listening to. I had no idea what it was about. And from that day on, really, I, I have to say I found almost all other music far, far below that standard. And it was as if I personally had found the music that I've been looking for all through my sort of years of being 10, 11, 12, 13. And, you know, i have been listening to, my mom and dad gave me the Beatles and I've been listening to the music everyone listens to, but I just not heard Dylan or not consciously heard him. And then I put that on and and, uh, and what a song it is.
0: That was going to be my question. What did you grow up listening to? But, uh, and how did you find, in that case, how did you happen to have that on yeah,
2: your... That's what
1: I want to know. What was it doing on side <laughs> yeah. two? Why that one first? Well, it, yeah. was,
2: it was it was amazing. I mean, I used to get the bus to school. I went to school in the center of Manchester, and there was a kind of group of seven or eight of us um, who would sit near the back, and we'd listen to music, because um, it was quite a long ride into Manchester, about an hour. And... We'd have different tapes and different music. And there was a kid, and I can't even remember his name. And he was younger than me. And he'd had a tape that I'd wanted to borrow for what was on the other side. And I think that was a Talking Heads mixtape, to be honest. And I'd just been listening to that. And he'd lent me this compilation tape. And it was his dad's. (laughs) And he didn't even know what this stuff on the other side of the tape was. And of course, in those days, uh, it wasn't it wasn't so quick to find out. But I took the tape out and saw it was Infidels. It said Infidels Dylan. And the first thing I did when I got back from my holidays is is bought that album. And what an album it is. But what a song it is. I mean, it's about so much. It's a sort of I mean, I just thought what which songwriter writes a chorus like that? You know, I and I in creation where one's nature neither honors nor forgives. I and I one says to the other. I just thought what? great human being has written this down and i just couldn't wait to to find out and of course now i know much more what the song's about and it it bounces through the kind of the citation of exodus from exodus in the old testament uh where god refers to himself as the i am and i am and it comes through the rastafarian idea of i and i and uh meaning a human consciousness in oneself and also human consciousness as bodied in god and you know, the song's about this incredible confrontation with with reality and existential misgiving and, and art. And like all great Dylan work, it's both mystical, it's religious, it's very physical, it's about a woman, it's about his own work, it's about something very, very intelligent. It's an amazing song and uh, and it's still one of my favourites. It's still one of my favourites.
0: I can only think that you must have been quite a precocious 14-year-old. Not a lot of 14-year-olds, I think, would respond to that particular Dylan song. You know, there's there's much more accessible songs.
1: Well,
2: I don't know. I mean, I was always really super, super keen on English and the English language. and I And I, in fact, went on to read English at university and formed a band called The Infidels and made it my mission to make all those bastards listen to endless, <laughs> endless covers. Yeah, yeah. And I, st- I used to write a magazine for the college, and each week the magazine would just have loads of Dylan quotes, and I didn't care. They were going to come with – I've converted quite a few, by the way. They're, they're, they hated you. it, but they're coming with me. And one by one, they, they, for- even now, many years later, I get little emails saying, you know, Ed, you were right. I've just started listening. Uh, I took a couple of them to the concerts, but I, I, I was always really, really into – language and poetry and the way, I mean, the thing that's amazing, the thing that's amazing and puts Dylan up there with with Shakespeare and, and Dunn and others, is that he has this incredible facility, this incredible poetic facility, which is able, on the same line, to render the inner spiritual experience, the inner physical experience, lust, that kind of stuff, as well as a very kind of human experience. And there's just so few poets that have all three gifts operative simultaneously. And uh, and that's the thing about him. I mean, a lot of people, uh, you, you can read Byron for lust. You can read you can read uh, Wordsworth for nature. You can read T.S. Eliot for intellectual stuff. But I've never found anyone who, apart, I think, from Shakespeare, who... Who is such a virtuoso of all three at the same time, and somehow manages to make those lines both capacious and at the same time narrowly meaningful. And I, I just I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was um I mean the next song is terrible.
0: <laughs> I to say. That was gonna like, be my question, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. you made of the entire album?
2: Well, I yeah. didn't I didn't like I don't like Union Sundown. I think it's a it's a clumsy Dylan song, I think. Mm. And it's it's one of those albums I mean you guys both know I'm sure the lineup uh is, is kind of interesting because Martin offler plays the lead guitar the bass and drums are are from uh, Bob Marley's band
1: um, Robbie.
2: that's right yeah, and yeah. uh and it's a kind of it, it's got some I think of Dylan's very greatest work I mean you're, you're both no joke man of course and, and I'm sure you both love that but hmm. it's also it's not coherent in the sense of Modern times, or Oh Mercy, or mm. Highway 61, but it—I think it reaches. I would put two or three of the songs certainly in the top twenty. It's mm. got some of his best work on it, um, but that's how it got started for me. That was that was Infidels, and that's that's where I began. And then there's Neighborhood Bully. Oh, Wait, <laughs> you know, well, I know I, I
0: I can stand up for Neighborhood Bully, guys. I'm I. Go, uh, go. Well, uh, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, (laughs) but uh, I think actually it's it's a uh, he's very passionate when he sings it. It's a good tune, and at the time, it 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 was to me it was a relief from the Jesus songs. That's all you know. I don't think it's a great song, and I don't certainly don't think it's dated well. But
1: uh, uh, he's written much worse. I wonder if there's a playlist of Dylan songs that we can reasonably uh, define as dodgy as fuck. Um, is your love in vain possibly in that i don't know see
0: i think is your love in vain is 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 dodgier as far as far as yeah, I'm concerned. well
2: we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to come on to street legal because i'm not gonna i'm not i'm just not gonna let either of you try <laughs> even no, for no, a come minute on, you
1: said that you think street legal might be in his top two albums which oh, I, yeah. I would love yeah, to hear no, you talk no, more about no
2: that. no i mean street street legal is the moment in dylan's career when it all comes down to it uh, and I think that the passage through the 70s you know the false flag of uh, of new morning and then the kind of I don't know the 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 feeling in in blood on the tracks that there is blood on the tracks and then the kind of Spanish inflected desire and all of that blood on the tracks really leads to street legal and in street legal you get this incredible moment where everything coheres but in a dark way So it's a deeply religious or spiritual, and yet it's about the absence of God. You know, that song, Señor, where is the God um, that he's appealing to? Nowhere to be seen. The journey through dark heat. And at the same time, this kind of dark eroticism with, with New Pony. And then on top of all that, this kind of utter sense of abandonment and i think he reaches in street legal a synthesis of his gifts albeit played in such a dark and grim for him way that he never gets to again i don't think till maybe maybe modern times or rough and rowdy ways too too soon to know about that but that's the album where in a strange way the masks are off. I know with Dylan, masks mean many things and masks are always on. But but what I mean by that is that's as close as you get to this great artist's soul burning out of an album.
0: You know, I, I hate to disagree with a guest so early in the show, but <laughs> I actually Street Legal to me is... Yeah an album that i i like the individual songs and i love some of the individual songs but it's i was thinking about this today some some songs or even some albums you listen to and you love instantly uh and some you you don't like some are beautiful to you and 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 highly charged when i heard changing the guards i thought oh god what an ugly song i i found the the arrangements ugly i i found the uh, the female backing singers ultimately tedious. Like, I thought the first couple of minutes, I thought, yeah, sure. Like every song on Street Legal, the first couple of minutes, I go, yeah, sure. And by the end, I'm drained. And that doesn't happen to me with Blood on the Tracks. That doesn't happen to me with New Morning, which you just a little bit sort of threw away. I I love New Morning. But of course, it's not in the same league as Street Legal as far as depth. But, you know, you can grow to love something. And I tried to. I listened to Street Legal a number of times uh, since we knew we were going to have you on the show. Mm. And I still find
2: it kind of exhausting and a bit embarrassing. Oh, oh listen, I'm well the first one I'm certainly not going to dis- disagree with. This is this is Dylan's Bosworth. This is his this is this is after the battle. He's wa- walking around a battlefield and there's blood and corpses and death and everything's gone wrong and his career's over and he can't sing and there is no god and there is no woman and there's nothing and he can't even play very well. It's just terrible. But somehow In this darkness, he picks himself up and he starts to sing and he sings 16 years. And what an amazing song that is, because really what it's about is I've come all this way and I've now been taken off my horse and cut to ribbons and I somehow have to rebuild. And you can feel, you can feel the absence of God in that album and you can feel his spirit desperate thirsty this is the valley of dry bone dreams this is the this is the end of the road this is the place where i don't think he ever even dared go there again it was so bleak so exhausting absolutely embarrassing no i think it's it's beyond embarrassment it's not really something he's got control um, embarrassing is things like the bad tracks on on knocked uh, out loaded or where he completely Balls is up, empire, burlesque. That, that's embarrassing mm-hmm. uh, because embarrassment suggests a degree of, of, of control almost. But in Street Legally, he's, he's got no control. It's just, I mean, I fought with my twin, the enemy within till both of us fell by the road. There's, there's no one left standing in, in that album. And I, I don't mean to say in a way it's my favorite album. I don't even mean to say it's the one that I listen to the most. It, it probably isn't but it's the one where I feel greatest kinship with his artistic defeat. And I think that that honesty doesn't come. I don't think he's as defeated again. The next time he's defeated, which is down in the groove, um, he doesn't try. He just, he he leaves the battlefield and says, I'm going to have some, a cup of tea, but in street legal, he's not, he's not dead yet.
0: Well, that's beautifully put. I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't, argue with that uh, with the exception i think of is your love in vain which i think is embarrassing and uh, stands <coughs> the test of time as a song in which i am embarrassed for him but it's honest uh there's no way it's not honest and you know i take my hat off to him for that but is it an album what is the album that you go to i'm interested because i say i don't go to street legal and i probably won't go to it again for quite a while for my bob dylan fix You know, some days my Bob Dylan fix is one of the early ones. Some days it's Highway 61. Some days it's Together Through Life, which I think is a very listenable album. What's your go-to?
2: Well, I mean, I I've become one of those people who it's so profoundly in me that I I don't. If you ask me, how does it feel? It feels like communing with somebody who, in all seriousness, is trying to figure out something. Incredibly profound about what it means to be a human being and and doing that through the medium of poetry and actually through the medium of sung poetry. And so what I've done to myself is I have a kind of rule, which is kind of strange, but I, I stick to it, which is I have the whole of Dylan on shuffle, and I do it for precisely the reason you sort of intimated there, which is, right. I don't want to have something I'm not going to listen to, and I know if it leave it up to me, <laughs> I'll choose stuff, I'll choose albums, and I won't, I won't go to. But if you have it on shuffle, <laughs> and suddenly, um, I don't know. Let me let me think of a good example. Ugliest suddenly, girl in the world. Yeah, ugliest girl in the world comes on. And you and you've got this deal with yourself. You've got to listen to it. There's Ed. You've got to listen to it, man. You're 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 not getting out of it. That's what we're listening to. And you and you and then you just and you have to. And it's and and you know what? You get so much from that because you Mm, suddenly mm, you mm. suddenly hear it. I mean, I know because I've read so much about him and I've read all the books about him. He's having. I mean, I think that was the worst time for him creatively. And I read this terrible book by by someone who was one of his girlfriends then, and it was just desperate. But it was desperate without without even the kind of grandeur of street legal. It was just, you know, I always think of Dylan as this great train ride across America. So let's just say for a moment, bear with me on the metaphor, but you're going from New York to Los Angeles. and And I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make is you have to be on the whole ride because of course, some of it is going to be deathly boring as you go through the suburbs of, of some very minor town and look out over, over factories and back alleys. And then the rest of, you know, other bits would be amazing. But I think Knocked Outload in that period at the end of the 80s is the only time when Dylan himself just does not know what to do. And so rather than put those songs off my radar i stick them on the playlist and you know what they come up i mean i was listening to my god they killed him the mahatma gandhi song the other day and it's like wow so bad but it's it's never that bad it's always interesting i was thinking you know this is really about him again isn't it of course it's about it's about jesus about dylan it's about Oh, and I was thinking, wow. And then, and then I was thinking about those lines from, from I and I, in fact, I can't stumble or stay put. And I realized the problem he had in that period, in, uh, kind of 86 to 88, is he stayed put. And then he talks, I think, in an interview about playing somewhere in Switzerland when he, st- and he was hiding behind his backing singers, he says, mm-hmm. and he suddenly had a vision. And the vision, he says, was that he had to not stay put. He had to keep moving. He had to keep going. And I think you see that with, with Oh Mercy, which I think is an underrated album. I think Oh Mercy is is top five. and, yeah, and I, I adore that album. I and mean, yeah. when yeah. somebody
1: says it's it's okay, I really have to bite, no, my, I just, bite yeah, my lip yeah. because I think yeah, it's just yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean and he comes back and he keeps moving again. But sorry, this is a long answer. I, I have them all on shuffle for, for the for the reason that um if if Dogs Comes Free On, then I've just gotta I'm just gonna have to listen to it. Um mm. and there are lots of songs I don't like. I mean there are lots of songs I don't know how many he's written, but there's at
1: least a third of his work that is is not great, but it's always interesting. Well it's um, like if you have I mean I think there is there is no purer joy in musical terms than when your a song you love comes on the radio. And you hear it with different ears. Uh, you had no sense of expectation. You have no sense of context. It's someone else's decision, and you're not ready for it. And it leaps out of the speakers, and it kind of it exists only on its own terms. And I think you can do that with Dylan's output. Absolutely, if you put it on shuffle, and I'm mm. and I'm looking now at my ninety-four hour Spotify playlist that have, <laughs> available my, through our uh, my our Spotify. my attempt to um, chronicle. One thousand three hundred and fifty songs into order of recording, and you put that on shuffle, and Clean Cut Kid comes along or something. And you think, well, that's not so bad, and it's particularly not so bad because I've not listened to three or four songs on Empire Burlesque already, and I'm depressed, you know, and I'm all I'm railing against mid eighties production because it just exists by itself, and it's a really really instructive way to to reevaluate art without sounding too pretentious i think
0: no i totally agree i listened to dink's song today which came up on some uh shuffle thing uh, dylan's version of dink's song and uh, i had recently seen uh re-seen inside lewin davis and and heard the beautifully you know recorded uh marcus mumford uh oscar isaac version from the uh, soundtrack album and i and and i remember i was listening to that a number of times because it was so beautiful dylan's version wipes the floor with that it's so simple and rhythmic, and Dylan's voice, that's what it really is. They can't touch Dylan's voice with their beauty and, and their on-key singing. Speaking of, I'm just going to lead in, Ed. I've taken something from your website about Dylan's singing voice, which we can all um, listen to uh, as I recite it from your, from your article. And then we can discuss it. It's about Dylan's voice. Imagine an Old Testament prophet come down from the mountains of the desert. Imagine he has 70 years' worth of visions to impart in rich and vivid verse, visions comprised for the most part of searing and timeless human truth about love and God and man. But imagine that he has neither heard nor spoken a single word during his many decades alone, that his voice is therefore as cracked as the tablets he bears and as croaky as the rocks among which he has lived, and that furthermore he has no sense of the speed nor the sound, nor the stresses, nor the syntax of conventional speech. Now, imagine that a joker selling ecstasy tablets and helium balloons has waylaid him on the way to the amphitheater. And finally, imagine that when he, at last, steps up before you to discourse upon what is undoubtedly the quintessence of existence, he chooses to do so by intoning through a hookah pipe using only the five notes of the pentatonic scale. That is, is what I mean by Dylan singing. Those are
2: your words. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of it, you. isn't it? That's kind of it. I mean, it's so it's so amazing and bad and wonderful and exhilarating. I mean, the funny one of the great joys and pleasures of my life is going to concerts with people who've either only seen him once or not seen him at all, and just watching. Their faces, when he, he, he stumbles out looking like, you know, uh, like King Lear in some really minor play set in the deep south. Some some old man who's usually plays the fool has been asked to play King Lear and he's punched drunk because he's been boxing all day and drinking and sobered up. And then he kind of staggers out from the side and he's much shorter and kind of his hair's like this kind of weird cockatoo frizz frizz crown and he can't find his harmonicas and he doesn't know when his guitar is and he walks past the mic like he's never seen one in his life and the band's all playing the wrong notes and no one knows what the hell is going on and it's pitch dark and then suddenly somewhere a spotlight comes on and he stands forward and he says something like "I and I," and you're just like whoa what and no one knows what song it is and the band's lost and he's lost And then gradually everything comes into focus and you watch this man. And, you know, the concerts, I've been to hundreds and they are, they're just, for me, it's religious. It's like going, it's like going to church. I mean, you're, you're, uh, I mean, I'm completely not religious. This is as close as I come, but it's, you know, some days it's awful. I've been to some baddies, some real baddies, but the days that it's, good it's off the scale good he you know i often think that what's going on is that he's trying to conjure the ghosts of dylan past and sometimes he can he can bring i mean i saw him play the song we we opened with i and i in manchester in i think 94 uh with this drummer guy called winston watson playing Mm. on the drums you know he gets to that line no man sees my face and lives and and you just think, and it's God speaking to man, a man speaking back to God. And you can hear the Bible and you can hear God. So God saying to Moses, no man sees my face and lives. And you feel like you're watching this un- Old Testament prophet, incandescent with existence and rage, addressing the heavens and saying, listen, gods, what on earth are you doing? What is it? What have you done to us? We're We're abandoned down here. So you see these moments of deep, serious artistic transcendence—the kind of stuff you get with a great Shakespeare. Play. It's very like Shakespeare plays, actually. Now I think of it. Mm. Again, I've been to—I've been to dozens, and you get really bad versions, and you get really amazing, mesmerizing versions, often of the same play. Mm. Um, but what's always good, just like with Shakespeare, is the words so even in a bad Shakespeare you can just fall back on listening to what what's being said even if it's not being done well and it's the same with Dylan. I mean sometimes he wakes up during songs in live performance and suddenly thinks wow that's a good line and it means this other thing that I thought it meant and one of the amazing things about it is that the songs change meanings for both audience and performer through, through 20 years of, of performance you know I remember I think in that same piece he that I that you've quoted I was talking about um this wheels on fire which was written you know many many decades ago and can't have meant what it did mean in that concert uh in in the 90s at Bournemouth. Yeah. and what it meant in that concert was um I promised you I'd be back I promised you I'd sing to you again I promised you I'd give you more of this truth this poetic truth and here I am doing it and you think how the hell could it could what he sang then mean so much to us now? And there's a great communality in watching Dylan live as well, which is that you're all kind of there together and you're, you're as lost as he is and as found as he is. Um, is. And I love that. I love that. I mean, it's, it's an impossible thing to explain to someone who's, who's not experienced it because you, ha- you sort of have to go a few times before it begins to dawn on you what you're seeing.
0: One of the things that I don't understand is how he can play. There, there's a lot of people out there at every concert who are, for lack of a better word, idiots. Like the guy in front of us, Luke. Do you remember we went to see him at Wembley? Yeah. And it, 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 it was about three quarters of the way through the concert. The band was really going. And it was it was maybe not one of the top, top concerts ever, but he was really, he was, he was doing a good job. And they were doing good work. And it was it was absolutely riveting. And the guy in front of us went up. He was in the middle of the row. <laughs> and went out and got some fries with cheese you know some <laughs> melted cheese fries
2: how what are you doing here you know what are you yeah. what are you doing there
0: and yeah. and and how, and he's got to play to these idiots as well as you know people like us who are actually listening i find that even more extraordinary that he you know he goes out of his way even to play to the idiots.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean that's more. I think that's more to do with with venues. I mean, I've, you know, there, there are people out there who think that the Bob Dylan live experience is not complete without a paper plate full of you know rancid nachos. I've, I've been on stage and, and come out and smelt popcorn after the interval and thought, what the fuck, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've heard this line, Ed. There's a theatre director called Nate Markovich. I follow him on Twitter, but he said something which I found early in the year, and he said, Shakespeareans, do you want to know how to nail a caesura? make a rhyming couplet sound tough and consistently surprise an audience who already knows all the words, listen to Bob Dylan. And I just thought yeah. that was perfect. And that really, really taps into what you're saying, that there is a degree of familiarity. But as you say, this it can be bad and good at the same time. But it's a really, yeah. really valid comparison, I think. Well, I think, I think the
2: thing is, for him, is he's refiguring and reinvigorating them. I mean, one of the things I've written about uh, for the newspapers is just the simple, extraordinary artistic dynamism. And by that, I mean, not only has he, has he written 39 studio albums, but imagine, just imagine for a minute that I said to you, okay, guys, this year, we're going to perform live singing for 100 nights of the year, and we're going to have to, we're going to charge people a lot of money, right? So we're going to have to be somewhat good and then uh next year you know what we're doing we're doing that again and you know what we're doing the year after that we're doing that again and we're doing it from the almost 30 years of that hundred night and you've got to do it by i mean just imagine the travel and the the logistics soul spend to even get yourself on stage and to to do that at the level that he does it is extraordinary and that kind of that kind of tremendous imaginative power that he brings to reinterpretation, that's where his vitality is. Because unlike Mick Jagger, which is essentially a museum act, or, or Paul McCartney, who's who's kind of well-meaning but not profound, Dylan knows that he can find things in the stuff he's written every night. And, he, and some nights he definitely doesn't. But on the nights that he does, he's bringing this tremendous imaginative power to self-revelation in order to find again something truthful to share with you, something that's full of feeling and insight, but something that's not delivered at the expense of intelligence or subtlety or wit. Mm. Uh, and that's because he's forcefully and seriously engaged with the quiddity of life, with the, with the real business of life. And I think that that's what makes him Shakespearean. It's, it's a similar kind of massive, lifelong, serious engagement with human truth with hum- with love with death with spirituality the bridge in between and that's what you're there for that's what you're watching and you have to you ha- he has to find it too it's in his words he, it's always written in because as you know he's he packs his his writing from all over, uh, you know, from the, from the Old Testament. There's there's tons of Ovid in it. I mean, if you listen to something like "As I Went Out This Morning," it's almost it's almost word for word Ovid. But then there's this there's the Rastafarian stuff I've just talked about. And then there's all the Christian stuff, and then there's endless iterations of of the poets that he reads. So the work is so rich that when when he's up there in the lights, trying to find his way through the through the Old Testament storm he just suddenly, the lights go on and he gets it and you hear some, I'm sure you both know this, but the funny feeling you get when you hear a Dylan line, and I've never understood that before. Of course it's about that. Mm -hmm. It's not about what I thought, it's about that. And that's like Shakespeare, you know, you're you're halfway through a Hamlet soliloquy and you think, ah, oh, of course, of course I'm an
1: idiot. Mm -hmm. It it was about that all along. And I think that the other thing that, that reminds me of Shakespeare is if you see a bad one, you still go back. I mean, the first time I saw Dylan was in 1991 in Hammersmith. He was awful. There's no two ways about it. He was utterly appalling. I went again two (laughs) years later, and then three years later, and then one year later. And he progressively got better and better for about 10, 15 years. But I I was thinking to myself is there another performer where I do this, where they started off the worst thing I'd ever seen and I'd still go back, <laughs> willing them to get better because I could see that they had it in them to do so. I saw him once. I can't remember. what I, I saw all those Hammersmith shows in 90
2: and 91 and then in mm. 93, I think he was back. Yeah. Um, and I saw him come on and he just he'd obviously just lost the harmonica key that he needed. He couldn't <laughs> find it. I don't know if it was G or C or whatever it was. He just couldn't find it. And he'd been pottering about. You you know how he sort of potters about in the semi darkness. Yeah. yeah. And he just couldn't find it, and so and so the band were playing, and they'd been on the third loop through, and and no one knew what was going on. And then it, and then he found a harmonica, and and started to blow it. But it, it was clearly the wrong key, and you could see the band like slightly thinking, "Do we switch key? Switch songs, Stop? Start? What do we do?" Uh, and he just started playing the whole thing in the wrong key and, and they all started to move around and then he gave up he just took the harmonica out put it back down again everyone back into the same key and start playing again it was just unbelievable well, you, you think- can you can do that
1: i mean i think that the, the king Curtis saxophone solo in respect is in a different key from the rest of the song i mean these things can work <laughs> but fuck or you hell. can you
0: can be like van morrison i saw van morrison once i say he said this is the wrong key uh uh harp bring me another harp and started yelling at his roadies and people were scrambling around and he never did get the you know the, the right one and probably well you know the apocryphal story about people uh, the roadies uh, doing yeah. unspeakable things to yeah. van morrison's um equipment uh harp but anyway um he just it, it, it was chaos but bad chaos it wasn't entertaining chaos in fact he lost the audience Whereas Dylan, when he does that, you're just, you're on the edge of your
2: seat. Yeah, you're leaning in. You're like, um, yeah. you're, you're, you're you're waiting for him to find it. I remember, I can't remember which concert it was when he was playing uh Don't Think Twice, and I heard that song for oh, the yeah. first time. And I thought, not for the first time, sorry, I mean I heard the line, what it meant for the first, and I and mm-hmm. I suddenly realized it meant, you know, and this is the other thing that binds him to Shakespeare and Dunn and these and the great great writers, is he he was he got four meanings out of a single line. So he got, you know, do think twice, uh, it, it's all right. Do think twice, it's not all right. Don't think twice, it's all right. And don't think twice, it's not all right. And you could feel all four meanings present as he sang it. And it, it suddenly yeah. dawned on him what an amazing line that is as well. It's all in the delivery.
0: That's the wonderful thing about seeing him live is when, when something makes Dylan smile, to me, it's like the sky's part and it's, it's sunny all of a sudden. Somebody was banging out a really Fabulous organ solo in concert, but Dylan's eyes lit up, yeah. and he 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 grinned from ear to ear for a long time, and he was he was sort of bopping along and just really enjoying himself. And you know, Bob doesn't allow himself, I think, the luxury of showing the audience his enjoyment. That's very rare, mm-hmm. and so when you see it, it's just he loves us, or you know, it, 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 there's something. So wonderful! It just just to see that on a grainy YouTube video absolutely made my day. It's
1: that feeling like when he makes a joke on Theme Time Radio Hour or something, isn't it? It just, it just yes. brings him back down to earth again. I mean, <laughs> I've almost done myself physical damage when he when he jokes on Theme Time Radio Hour. I
0: throw my head back and you know, hit it on the wall because it's so funny to hear. Just to hear, it's like God joking.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is like that. But he's so warm and wry and collusive and intimate and you get you get a sound of what he must be like to talk to and i think that's all there i mean i think i think the reason that he's so distant on the shows is just because he does a hundred of them you know uh, a year and he's 75 or he's nearly 80 now of course but yeah. you know he can't give himself Uh, That much,
0: I I agree. But you know the the difference between like I've always it's my contention that Dylan is most for most of the time uh, a terrible uh, film actor. He's a terrible actor because he doesn't he can't and won't and somehow is he's just incapable of of replicating fake behavior. And so, whereas we the Luke and I are both actors and i've been, I've done shows with people that I've not gotten along with miserable tours, but my character was supposed to be enjoying themselves so people would say to me after the show, God, you were really enjoying yourself out there, weren't you? And I didn't, I wouldn't say, no, it's, I'm a fucking brilliant actor, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was acting, you know, but they, you know, didn't see that and I, I wasn't going to correct them. But Dylan can't do that. He's, because wh- the thing that you're doing when you're an actor is you're concentrating really hard at pretending that you're someone else and that you're, and so you, you, Ex, your exterior is different from your interior. Your interior is thinking, oh, the audience, uh, you know, they I'll turn this way, I'll hit the light, that person is too far upstage, whatever. But uh, Dylan can't and won't do that. So consequently, you, you rarely see him enjoying himself in the, in the way an audience wants him to enjoy himself, in the way that Frank Sinatra would pretend that he was enjoying himself when he was doing his 100th concert.
2: Yeah, I think the thing about Dylan that we're kind of circling here is there's a deep authenticity that comes Hmm. with his work which is not and by that I mean I don't mean a straightforward uh, quotidian not telling the truth because we all as we all know he's a he's an infamous liar and, and, and indeed has invented the the person of Bob Dylan but what I mean by authenticity is that he is a tremendously powerful reporter from the front line of his own experience and doesn't flinch in that business. And that might mean that his own experience is, is deeply in love. It might mean he, he's deeply in sorrow. It might mean that he's just found Jesus. It might mean that he hates Jesus. It might mean that it's, he's gone to New Orleans and found a new way of singing. It might mean that he's, he, he's riding together through life. It might mean any number of things, but he opens his veins and he says, this is what it's like for me now and in a way that I don't think almost any other artist does. I mean, people like Bowie and Tom Waits and those guys, all of whom I love, are acts, Lou Reed, I think even, in a way that Mm -hmm. Dylan not. And even Leonard Cohen, who's perhaps the closest peer that he has, the persona of a sonateering lover is a persona, whereas for Dylan, the, the authenticity is in here so deeply that it's not really acting, it's something else. It's to do with inhabiting inhabiting himself as a transmitter of what he believes to be true, however that needs to be done. And that that is something that I think really kind of carves him out, this incredible, authentic turning up with the truth. I mean, one of the things I wrote about years ago was just, I just always find it, it, you guys are both actors, I'm a writer. One of the things I find amazing is to keep working. You know, I mean, if I if I write a book and I, it hasn't really happened, but I've had a couple of, of not great reviews. You feel bad because you think, well, now the whole public has read this and you know, my mom's read it and my, my wife's read it and all the, uh, and of course you, you pick yourself up and you go again. To do that 39 times after you've been traduced in the most vile way, time and time and time again, I just find that extraordinary, the way he just says, okay, well, I'll do
1: another album then. How you do that, I I don't know. Well, it must take enormous confidence and security. And I mean, it's almost like, the thing I love about Dylan more than anything, I think, is that he never feels he has to talk about the work. He always always feels that the work will stand for itself that you know that explains all his cryptic mid sixties responses to journalists. He will never i mean with occasional exceptions like in the line of notes for World Gone wrong he'll never sit down and specifically and methodically go through the songs but they were they were other people's songs, so I suppose that's why, but I was listening at the weekend to one of those tracks which has been quite difficult to get over the last few years, but now has appeared on Spotify, which is the the version on the elusive disc three of Telltale Signs of Can't Wait that mm-hmm. sounds a bit like Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really listened to it properly before. But it's it's absolutely that. It's absolutely that opening his veins. The the desolation in that song is for the for the six or seven minutes of the song's duration seemed unparalleled in his canon. And yet this is an a relatively obscure outtake from an album recorded 23 years ago. The third different version of it that only some people paid for at the time, and he's content to just let that rise to the surface one day. It yeah. was really
0: sad when he when he stopped trusting himself until, you know, he you know he wrote the song "Trust Yourself" on Empire Burlesque, and I think that that was possibly directed at himself because, oh, of course, he was yeah. lost, uh, and it's it's really sad. When Dylan becomes inauthentic, which I think the, the songs on, say, here's the you know Empire Burlesque um, discussion, um, the songs are a lot of them are fabulous, but the you know he didn't trust himself enough to put his foot down about the
2: god awful production. Empire Burlesque is is also, I think, an underrated album. I think there's a lot on there that's that's tremendous um, lyrically, but as you've just said, I think what happens when he comes to record that is he doesn't know where to go musically he's done what he's done and he's found his way and he's brought Mark Knopfler in to do to do Infidels um, and Infidels I think has I know not everyone likes it but I think it has a very cohesive atmospheric sound mm, yes. and I think with Empire Burlesque you've got just a, a man thrashing about musically everything I mean, if you think about. Um, dark eyes and the Mm. difference between that and when the sky comes falling i mean i mean how can they be on the same when the studio comes falling
0: from the sky yeah yeah
2: yeah. And, and and yet you can still hear this is why there's no uninteresting dylan album you can still hear tremendous authenticity in dark eyes and in when the sky comes falling you can hear him the production's ruining it but you can hear him you know, I, I set my feelings down in a letter when you were gambling for support. He means it. He absolutely. When he wrote that, he meant it. Uh, and that's that. I remember you as well, which is a, it's a funny song because it, it sometimes comes on my famous still and shuffle, and I think, oh God, really, I've got to listen to this. Other times, <laughs> I'm in the mood. You know, I've heard some people say it was written about. I, I don't know the truth of this, by the way. Some people say it was about Elizabeth Taylor. Some people about his dad. I don't know. But if you Get that song on the right day when you when you can physically take it because it's so to the bone. Um, then it's an amazing song. But on other days, you think, oh, it's soupy and but but it's it's. I think he's very very rarely naff, uh, which is a strange English word. But I think he's never that. It, it's it's sometimes misbegotten. Hmm. But I can't think of a song. I mean, I I would even defend is your love in vain. I don't think there's a song where I think, come on, man, you, there's always a reason that he gets to the page. There's a truth there. There's something he wants to say. There's a, there's a powerful, artistic, lyrical endeavor behind what he's trying to say.
0: I I, uh, Luke sent me, just before we um, uh, went on the air here, um, he sent me a link to the Masked and Anonymous version of I Remember You, uh, which isn't on the album which is just in the uh, rather terrible movie. And it's heartbreaking. Mm. It's fabulous, totally reveals the song. Um, I really recommend that to anybody. And it, it proves what you what you just said, Ed, that, uh, I mean, it really is, it's a deep, beautiful, just gut-wrenching um, version, uh, as opposed to the, uh, the original.
1: You know what about Empire Burlesque? Something's just occurred to me. I wonder how influenced he was by Bruce Springsteen. Born in the USA came out the year before. And is one of Bruce Springsteen's most successful albums. And I'm going to get some stick for saying this, but the production on most of it is pretty horrible. But the songs are some of the darkest, bleakest songs. And they're all purposefully dressed up in upbeat melodies. I mean, all the songs on Born in the USA are about rejection, desolation, failed dreams, failure in general. And even a song like Glory Days is about looking back on the fact that the glory days have passed. And, you know, and it's all dressed up in this very poppy, very mid-80s production. And it was incredibly successful. And I wonder if he thought he could do that. I don't know.
0: Well, he must have. I mean, he hired Arthur Brown and he knew what he could do. So uh, and he was yeah he was keen for a hit wasn't he?
1: I'm going to let you correct yourself to Arthur Baker so I can, uh, I can sorry re- edit. yes Arthur Brown. I was I was going to come in. No, I think that,
0: <laughs> the, okay, I I'm going to say it. it. <laughs> well, he hired well he hired Arthur Baker so he knew what he was doing right.
1: There's <laughs> no way that's going to be editable. You're laughing. No, just <laughs>
0: cut it.
2: <laughs> but I think there's but I think there's you know you you hear another song on that album that I think he is. It, it, again, on, on the on the Great Dylan Shuffle comes on, and my heart leaps. I love it when it comes on, almost because I wouldn't play it of my own volition. Is the title track, you know, tight connection to my heart, which I know is, he has done many recordings of. But if we just go with the album recording, you just hear that. I can still hear his voice crying in the wilderness. What looks large from a distance, close up, ain't never that big. You see and hear him you know, all of that Jesus stuff and all of that born again stuff, and then the sort of new Zionism of infidels, he can still hear his voice crying in the wilderness. And it's really, as as so often with Dylan, his own voice crying in the wilderness, and it's the wilderness of uncreativity. He doesn't know what to do. And yet, even though he doesn't know what to do, there's something about that song which... I must be guilty of something. You just whisper it into my ear. There's something so, do you know those Browning poems? I can't remember off the top of my head, but where they're like dramatic monologues. It's like he's talking to you, but kind of talking to someone else. It's it's a mesmerizing song, I think.
1: I think you've hit upon a connection, actually, as well, between Street Legal and Empire Burlesque, that there is a similar quality to both those albums, which I hadn't fully appreciated before. And I think that that 16 years that he talks about at the beginning of um, Street Legal, it's not often in his career that he openly refers to his own career. But 16 years before 1978 is 1962. That's right. You know, that is the length of his career. And those are the opening words. And he's quite clearly saying, this is me on some level, isn't he? And I think there's a degree of that, although more buried in Empire Burlesque.
0: Ed, you you referred 10 minutes ago to Together Through Life. And I'd just like to squeeze that in because it's an album that's, that's very rarely sort of mentioned anymore, although it was quite big when it came out. And uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff on it. And it was recorded 30 years, I I realized, after Street Legal. Uh, And he'd stopped, you know, he was no longer in that dark place. He, to me, Together Through Life, I think the reason I put it on just on a, you know, relaxed day, not that there isn't heavy stuff in it, but there's a lot of relaxed stuff in it, that he's the sort of guy, he's become age 67 when it came out, the sort of guy that you, you could imagine having a uh, funny radio show and having a drink with. What do you make of it?
2: Well, I mean, uh, I, I seem to be, my purpose on this podcast seems to be just sticking up for the albums everyone else is, is down on. So I'm now going to stick up for Together Through Life. I think it's, like all Dylan's work, absolutely rivetingly interesting. And I, and I think, he, here's the thing, right? If you go, as I did, to some of the shows, Um, in the later 90s and you hear him play for example forgetful heart and you hear that drum and you know that drum's kind of his heart and you know that he knows the number of beats left is limited and you hear him address his own heart and he stands there like some old testament prophet and he starts to sing and he says forgetful heart lost your power of recall and the sneer in that every little detail you don't remember at all the times we knew who would remember better than you? And it's so direct, so to himself, so full of that grandiloquent sneering, but at his own expense and so dark and so lost. And then and then he kind of comes round and he's sort of going through the verse. And he, and he, he always stands up right at the front when he sings this. He, and he puffs his chest out if you watch him. And he goes, you know, you're. It's been so long. Now you're content to let the days go by. I.e., you're not writing good songs. When you were there, you were the answer to my prayer. Forgetful heart. And he's. It's. It's a. It's a companion song, I think, to um, Heart of Mine. I love it when he talks to his his own heart. And it's about precisely what you're talking about, which is has he lost it again? And I think that that song lifts the whole album. But I would also absolutely defend three or four other songs on that i mean i think beyond here lies nothing is a tremendous song i don't love the i don't love the music again but it's got this kind of i don't know it's it's got a kind of what does he sing i'm trying to remember the words now my ship is in the harbor and the sails are spread listen to me pretty baby lay your hand upon my head it's like i'm ready for death there's a lot more darkness in that. There There's another line about the mountains of the past. Mm. He's talking as he's always talking about his own work. And the the thing about a Dylan album, which is a kind of six or seven on 10, is we're always talking about them if we go backwards, there's Modern Times, which I think is 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 in the top five. And then if you go forwards, there's now Rough and Rowdy Ways. So of course, we're sort of slightly down on Together Through Life. But if anybody else had written even one of those songs, we'd all be having babies for them. It'd be like, wow, he's really woken up. Oh my God, Neil Young's back, or whoever it would be. Whereas for Dylan, we just kind of take it for granted. I think the great... Dylan's shuffle thing when it when so if a, you know if I feel a change coming on mm. uh comes on the last part of the day is already gone and the way he says that the way he sings that and he keeps saying it he keeps saying it, it's like an incantation and I think it's an album much more weirdly much more about death than people think because it's jaunty but actually, it's Dylan talking about, it's Dylan talking very much as though, oh, ain't no use in dreaming, I have better things to do. Dreams never worked out anyway, even when they did come true. He's talking about uh, his whole life and he's he's preparing to die, I think, in it, as I think he is in a lot of these, a lot of these albums in, in the last 10 years. But I, I really like Together Through Life. And I think it's a, it's one of those albums which you both must know this weird feeling, man, when you're. You know, thirty years of your life pass, and someone makes you listen to I don't know Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, uh, and you haven't. I mean, I haven't listened to that album for twenty years, and you sit down and you listen to it, and you think, "Oh my God, it's much better than I thought." Or suddenly you get to the end of "Under the Red Sky," and you've not listened to that for anything. You think it's not as good as I remember. And the thing about Dylan's work, where you where you have to be humble in a way, is you never really know if it's any good till years pass. I mean, I didn't really love Street Legal until I began to think upon his plight and, and see him in the battlefield, see him in the battlefield of his own life, and see him laying down low in the reeds without any oxygen. When I started to see, hear what he was saying, my admiration for him went up, and, and Together Through Life is a bit like that. I think the jauntiness of the music is the thing that takes us away from... It's, it's similar to Empire Burlesque, actually, now we're, we're talking about that. In mm-hmm. that in the mu- the music is not commensurate, I think, with the with the words, or not always...
0: Yeah, they don't always fit to me, it's like uh, well, you know, uh, when he went and studied with Norman Rayburn yeah. and uh you, all the you had to he learned how to everything exists at once and looking at different angles and time and does is a construct. And, and but the music is is like that, I think, on Empire Burlesque. And it's very difficult for me to get through that for Empire Burlesque. You know, I I I, I try to listen, but after about the problem with uh, Uh, Listening to Dylan Dylan album all the way through, it's actually a big mistake a lot of the time. Like listening to Empire Burlesque all the way through is kind of a fool's errand. It's or uh, it's more than I can take. Whereas listening to an individual song from Empire Burlesque, that's right. uh, You know, just listening to Clean Cut Kid, you know, on its own, I think it's great. But when it's in the middle of the album, I I I'm, I'm already exhausted, and I think it's sort of trite. But uh, yeah, that's I should I should put everything on shuffle and start again, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, I find it a great way to, live, especially when when you've done a lot of it, as we have, and you're, and 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 what I find so, what I love about 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 Dylan is the great revivication that he brings, not just to his work, but to your life as the as the listener. Because he's about reinvention. He's about revivication. He's got this incredible ability to, even when he sh- just lie down and die, man, you're 75, you've done the best work in the world. He says, no, no, I've got another album. I've got this, this new thing called Rough and Rowdy Waste. You've got to listen to it, guys. And you're like, whoa. And we, as, as humble partakers in, in his art, get some of that intravenous whatever it is intravenous revivification into our veins so i'm sitting around like listening to that thing on on the train everyone's in masks when it came out and i'm thinking my god this man's alive this man is so alive and it made me feel revivified it made me feel like okay okay you've got to you've got to keep going got to be not afraid you've got to turn up for me that's a blank page for for you guys it's a new show turn up and and damn well do it you know and you listen to that thing that amazingly haunting song um where where he talks about he's been putting livers and hearts and bones yes. and he's he's got it all together and you realize he's not lying it's just that's how he somehow got it. You know, my own version of you. I'm trying to remember the word. It's, it's the album I know least well because I just haven't had enough time to listen to it. But, you know, when he says, um, all through the summers, that's it. I've been visiting morgues and monasteries yeah. looking for the necessary. And that's about songwriting. Mm. And somehow right at the end of his life, he's got a Frankenstein and he's put it all back together and he's got electricity and he's jump-started it and the damn thing's standing up and staggering through the world again. And you're like, wow, he's done it. He's done it. He's got himself going. It's there's a Frankenstein Dylan abroad. And he's alive. And I'm gonna have to go and see him if I get a chance. And i you know, I'll be back at the shows the minute he he starts performing again. I love the joy and the and the revivication and the energy that he brings to his listeners' lives as well. I mean, here we are, you know, the three of us sitting around animatedly talking about this stuff. And we, we're just there's hundreds of thousands of people like us, and that's just the great thing about his work is it keeps you keeps you keeping on. You really want to know what's going on. I mean, you know, um, is he going to play the piano like Leon Russell next time I see him, or what? What is this album about? What's going on? And he's brought it to life, and he's spared no expense, and he's done it with decency and common sense, and all the things he says. And and here we are, and he's like, yeah, but in the wee small hours, I did this, man. I I I reinvigorated my whole artistic form, and guess what, guys? You can you can listen. Um, and I love that. I love that. I think that's that's a profound artistic gift to give to, to your generation and the generations to come. And, and that's why I think he's, he's he, if anything, I, I was joking in an email to you, I think he's underrated.
0: Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster,
1: Stuck Inside, Immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise digital imaging by Finn guys music is by sam Hare. we're part of pantheon podcasts the music podcast network find us on twitter at
0: is it rolling pod well the last thing i remember before i stripped and kneeled was that trainload of fools bogged down in a magnetic field a gypsy with a broken flag and a flashing ring said son this ain't a dream no more it's the real thing Visit successinohio.com today.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.